Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Helen Scales. And I'm Ben Valsler, and I'm going to kick off this week with a story about scanning for cancer's biochemical signature. Now, researchers in the States may have found a way to detect potential prostate tumours using magnetic resonance spectroscopy, and this should lead to fewer false negatives, better precision when locating tumours, and a better idea of quite how aggressive they are. At present, if prostate cancer is suspected, we need to take a biopsy. This can be directed by ultrasound, but as the tumour can only be confined to a small region of the prostate, they're actually very easy to miss them. Magnetic resonance spectroscopy analyses the biochemistry, unlike magnetic resonance imaging, which looks at the structure of the tissues. Now, this means that it can look for distinct chemical rather than structural signatures of a tumour. Leo Cheng and colleagues at the Massachusetts General Hospital published a study in the journal Science Translational Medicine that builds on some earlier work published in 2005. The earlier work looked at the biochemistry of a tumour and identified a metabolic spectrum for prostate cancers, a series of chemicals produced by the tissue that identifies it as a tumour. Studying the entire suite of metabolites left behind by a cell is known as metabolomics. With this ensemble of metabolites in mind, they set about scanning five cancerous prostate glands that have been removed from patients. Their scans measure the proportion of these signature metabolites to give an indication of whereabouts in the prostate had a higher malignancy index, i.e. a higher likelihood of these cells being cancerous. The prostates were passed on to histopathologists who, while being very careful to preserve information about whereabouts in the prostate any particular sample was taken from, they just used standard histological methods to analyse the tissue visually and determine where the tumours were actually located. When the results of the two tests were compared, five out of seven tumours coincided with areas of high malignancy index. The remaining two, it is thought, were compromised by being close to the edge of the prostate, where the interactions with air could have altered the metabolomic profile. Overall, their accuracy was over 90%. Now, intriguingly, there was also a correlation between the size of the tumour and the magnitude of the malignancy index, suggesting that this technique could not only identify the malignant tissue, but also give you an indication of quite how aggressive it is. This is only a prospective study at the moment, and the low sample numbers may lead to an overestimate of how accurate it really is, but they are very promising early results. As they say in the discussion part of the paper, metabolomic imaging has the potential to detect lesions, guide biopsy, and eventually identify other conditions of malignancy, such as tumour aggressiveness. They also add that it could be adapted to identify other types of cancer. So very promising work. I assume that this kind of scanning is um, feasible and, and not hugely expensive, or, or is that also something that might have to be addressed with this? Is it something that all hospitals have, or is it quite specialist? They use the standard scanners that they've already got. They've actually been using a particularly powerful one. Um, it's a seven Tesla one for those who want to know about these sorts of things, and hospitals are more likely to have a three Tesla or perhaps a 1.5 Tesla scanner. So that's something they want to look at to see if it still works in a less powerful scanner, but they're not 
specialist scanners. They're definitely available in, in a number of hospitals worldwide. Excellent. So looks that could be promising indeed. Well, I'm going to take things into the animal world now and to bats and dolphins, which may appear to be very different types of mammals. After all, one of them flies and the other one swims. But it turns out that they have both independently evolved exactly the same gene that allows them to use sound as a way of visualising the world around them. Both bats and dolphins hunt using echolocation. They emit bursts of high-pitched noise and listen very carefully as the sound waves bounce back to them. They use these echoes to build a detailed mental picture of their environment and hopefully pinpoint other animals that will will become their dinner. Well, a vital part of both bat and dolphin echolocation systems is a series of tiny stiff hairs in their ears. And these vibrate and detect those very high-frequency sounds. Um, And they're made from a protein called Prestin. Now an international team of researchers have published two papers in the journal uh, Current Biology and they've uncovered the remarkable fact that the Prestin gene for this protein has undergone precisely the same changes in DNA sequence in distantly related bats and dolphins. Now many other groups of animals have evolved to look remarkably similar despite really not being very closely related at all. So we've got things like modern day dolphins look rather similar to ancient extinct reptiles called which are very distantly related indeed. Um, But this is the first time that so-called convergent evolution has been detected at a molecular level. And the research team were able to build a genetic family tree showing how the changes in this Prestin gene built up identically over time, both in bats and in dolphins. And what this really suggests is that maybe there's, there's only one way, or certainly a very limited number of ways, that mammals can physically evolve the necessary apparatus to be able to echolocate. And it's really remarkable that many species of bats and cetaceans, and that's including whales and dolphins that can echolocate, have taken this same evolutionary pathway towards an identical genetic solution to the same challenge of seeing with sound. These examples of convergent evolution, it it always seems to be about the particular niche they live in. So being able to echolocate is so very useful that there's there's quite a lot of pressure to actually have some mechanism similar to that. Absolutely. And and the just remarkable thing is often when we're talking about physical conversion evolution, when things look similar, you know, they've come about, they've found that solution in very different ways. They may look the same, but they've sort of come at it from very different angles and, and have got different mechanisms to overcome that. But somehow echolocation is so very specific that there aren't that many, maybe that many ways in which we can do it at all. Well, one thing that there are many ways of doing is getting about, and we, of course, do it bipedally. But now it looks like people who run barefoot learn to minimise the impact shock uh, by adopting a different style of running from those people who are running wearing shoes. Now, this is according to research published in Nature this week, and it could help us to understand the impact-related injuries suffered by a relatively high percentage of runners. Daniel Lieberman and colleagues at Harvard University used kinematic and kinetic analyses to observe runners who were either habitually barefoot or who generally wore shoes. Both groups were asked to run in shoes and to run barefoot, and high-speed camera footage was taken to observe exactly how their feet move. They also got volunteers to run over a force plate, and this could analyse how the forces were transmitted during different kinds of running. Now, there are three ways that your feet can land when you're running. There's a rear foot strike, which is when you land heel first, a mid-foot strike, where the heel and the ball of the foot land simultaneously, sort of a flat strike, and a forefoot strike, in which the ball of the foot lands before the heel comes down. 
Sprinters and the habitually barefoot seem to mainly use forefoot or midfoot strike, while shod endurance runners and the majority of joggers use rear foot strike, so they land with the heel first. To understand why we use these different ways of landing and what it means for an injury risk, Lieberman looked at the force profile for each step type. So by plotting the forces felt against time on a graph, it was easy to see that rear foot strike, either in shoes or barefoot, has a very large spike of applied force just at the time of landing, while the forefront strike, so landing on essentially your toes first, gives you a very, very smooth wave with little or no sudden impact forces. Essentially, you have a much smoother ride. Now, this step also helps to lower the body's centre of mass relative to the vertical force, and this means that it reduces the mean force that's acting on your feet and your ankles. So landing on the forefoot first helps to reduce the amount of body's mass that needs to come to a full stop per step. And considering that most runners will strike the ground around 600 times per kilometre, I think, something along those lines, which seems like an awful lot... Uh, This is very significant for the development of stress injuries. Also, humans and their ancestors have probably been running ever since we adapted to travel bipedally. And we've only been running in shoes, especially in running shoes, for the last 40 years or so. So evidence from the structure of the modern human foot suggests that it is adapted to get the best out of forefoot strike running. So that's landing on the front of your foot. And this not only reduces the likelihood of stress injury, but it also offers a selective advantage by getting more out of your movement. So as the incidence of of running injuries remains significant despite advances in footwear technology, it seems that even the best shoes may not be as good for you as no shoes at all. It does certainly sound like we should be learning to walk again, which is quite bizarre, (laughs) or that we're really not doing ourselves any favour, although, of course, we're protecting ourselves from all that concrete and broken glass that we've invented, as well as fancy shoes. Anyway, I'm going to finish off the news this week, uh, returning to the fishy world, and a story that I just couldn't resist, because these are wonderful creatures that um, I learnt about many years ago um, when I was an undergraduate, and there's a new story that's come out about the enormous diversity of the wonderful cichlid fish living in Lake Tanganyika in eastern Africa and a particular group of these fish that has evolved a most peculiar feeding habit. They sneak up behind other fish and pick their scales off and they do this every time approaching from either one side or the other and you can easily see from looking at a fish whether it's a lefty or a righty by the shape of its mouth which is enormously lopsided bending around either to one side or the other like a pair of tweezers that's been bent over at the end. Now researchers Thomas Stewart and Craig Albertson from Syracuse University in the US have discovered that these fish are genetically programmed to have these lefty or righty mouths and um, and the reason in fact that you get both of these forms in a population rather than just one of them dominating is because there will always be an advantage for the minority form because if you imagine if the world was full of just righty cichlids the fish are going to learn that are being attacked are really going to learn to expect an attack from the right hand side so if there are any lefty fish hanging around they can easily sneak in and get a good bite to eat so that's why we get um, 
some lefties and some righties in populations. But it also turns out that the situation is a little bit more complicated than was originally thought because some scale-eating fish start out life with a straight mouth with their mouths pointing in neither left or right directions. And we really don't know what's going on here. And in fact, the the, um, researchers point out in their paper that there's a couple of different options for what might be going on because we don't see these straight-mouthed fish as adults. Um, Is it just that they're not surviving maybe because they're just not as, as good at hunting and sneaking up on these these prey fish? Or is it that, in fact, over time, their mouths do bend around to the left or right? And these are questions that they, they hope to address in the future. And it really just goes to show that from flat fish with eyes that migrate from one side of their bodies to the other, and us human beings who have hearts, usually on our left-hand side, means that not everything in life is neat and symmetrical. There are some very odd-looking things in our rivers and in our oceans, aren't there? I know, and they're all wonderful, aren't they? <laughs> Well, also in the news this week, scientists at Cambridge's Babraham Institute have identified a factor that helps to stop nerves from degenerating. Now, this could lead to better treatments for degenerative diseases, but also better ways to halt the degeneration of a nerve that gets damaged as a result of an injury or a stroke, for example. Dr. Michael Coleman leads the group responsible for the discovery, and he joins us now. Hi, Mike. Hello. So, first of all, just briefly tell us, what does a nerve cell look like? Okay, so let's start with the um, cell body, uh, which is essentially um, the equivalent of of what happens in most other cells. And in this cell body, you have the nucleus, which contains all the genetic material. Um, And compared to other cell types, then the nucleus might be slightly bigger and there's a little bit more metabolic activity and protein synthesis going on in that cell body. But by and large, the cell body is not so different from most other cell types. Then we have coming into uh, that uh, cell body uh, what we call the dendrites. Now, there could be very a huge number of these, literally thousands or tens of thousands of dendrites coming into that cell body. And the job of the cell body really is to integrate that signal that comes in from this enormous number of dendrites and to produce what we call an all-or-nothing response. And that all-or-nothing response, the electrical uh, activity transmitted to the next cell, then goes down what we call a an axon, and that's the bit that we're interested in. And what's, there's, there's two things, really, that's special about the axon. Uh, first of all, there's only one of them. Um, and this means that it, this is effectively, um, the, in, in some ways, the most vulnerable part of, of the neuron. Because if you lose that axon, you have totally lost the functional capability of that neuron. Uh, the second thing that's interesting about the axon is its length. Uh, these can be enormously varied between different types of neuron, uh, but in, in, in its extreme case, in a human, this can be anything up to a metre long. It can go the length of your arm or leg, and it can go the length of your spinal cord. So they certainly do sound like the, the fragile, the, the weak link in the chain. What happens when a nerve becomes damaged? Okay, so um, we've already pointed out the axon's very long, uh, and um, Clearly, uh, the the axon has to be supplied with all sorts of material from that cell body. Uh, So um, most of the proteins and certainly all of the RNA and many of the organelles are made within the cell body, and they have to be shipped out. Um, and there's a, a very intricate um, system of motor, what we call motor proteins, ATP-using proteins, uh, that, that uh, are responsible for taking out and controlling that delivery of those uh, proteins and organelles uh, to, the, to the further parts of the axon. Clearly, like any 
um, pipeline or supply system, uh, that's going to be vulnerable in, in various ways. So in, in various disorders which may be inherited or neurotoxic um, or, 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 or viral disorders, for example, uh, and protein aggregation disorders, you can have a, a, a blockage in this axon uh, which prevents material from getting to the far end. And sooner or later that result can result in, in, in functional impairment and ultimately the death of, of that axon. So you've been able to identify a, a particular factor that seems to be a, a sort of stay alive signal for the, for the axon itself. How did you find it? Why did you know that there was something like this there? That's right. Um, so what, what we did was effectively to, to ask the question, among these um, thousands of different cargoes that are being transported down the axon, is there something which is actually a limiting factor for its survival? So a nice analogy here might, might be um, a, a, a um, car accident on the motorway causing, causing a huge uh, build-up of traffic behind it. And in, among that traffic, among all those vehicles caught up on the motorway, you will have an enormous different uh, number of reasons uh, why those people are trying to get from A to B. Some will be uh, relatively trivial and not a major problem, um, and some might be a life or death issue in, in the most extreme cases. So, for example, the family trying to get to the beach uh, for a day out uh, will be very frustrated to be held up for half an hour, uh, but it might not be a major problem. Um, but if the, if the um, ambulance trying to get to the accident at the front is held up, then, the, then you quickly have a life or death issue on your hands. So what we have effectively done is to go in there and say, what is the first protein that becomes life-threatening for that axon if it cannot get through to the far end? And how did you identify it? Okay, so effectively what we did, um, I, the, I should say that the experiments didn't happen in this order, but when we stand back now and take a sort of broader look at it, we can interpret it in this way. So effectively what we did was was to cut the axon uh, and then say what... Uh, clearly that that results in a kind of catastrophic death of the of the of the more ex, uh, distant parts of the axon. That's something called Wallerian degeneration, which we spend most of our time studying. And um, then say what within there is is the first factor that that's um not being able to get through that kills that axon and to do that effectively what what we have done not always knowing at the time but what we have now done that we can see is to replace that factor by something that can substitute for its action and we knew that there was something which could keep those axons alive because experiments back in uh, University of Oxford in, in the late 1980s um, indicated that there was a, a, a mutant strain of mouse uh, which would acquired a spontaneous and harmless uh, mutation uh, and this in experiments where those um, nerves were being cut um, actually delayed the degeneration of those nerves by tenfold. And over the subsequent 10 years or so, uh, we and, and others identified the, the gene that's underlying this process. And the last 10 years, and what, what um, this uh, has just led to, has been un trying to understand why that, how that protein works. So by identifying the gene in these mutant mice, you were able to work out which protein, or at least which family of proteins it was that was responsible. Um, proteins, of course, always have strange names that are very hard to remember. What's this one called? Uh, it's called NMNAT2, nicotinamide mononucleotide adenylyl transferase. So difficult to say as well as difficult to remember. Yes. And so what does it actually do? We know that it seems to keep the nerve alive, but 
By doing what? Okay, so that's um, that's an interesting question. So it certainly has an enzyme activity. Uh, it makes a molecule called NAD, uh, which um, the biochemists among you will will know um, is is heavily involved in energy metabolism inside the cell, and that is in a way is the most obvious. Um, potential consequence of, of this protein uh, being missing when it can't get, get into the axon in enough quantity. Um, however, um, sometimes the most obvious um, direction to take is not the correct one, and, and we've seen this a number of times. Uh, and there, are, there is some discussion in the field at the moment about whether, whether NAD synthesis is the most important or the key um, um, function of this protein that's, that's involved in, in the um, axon degeneration or whether it's something else. Maybe it works in reverse or maybe it catalyzes a different reaction as well. So clearly there's still some work to be done, but what's the next stage for you? Okay, so um, what what we try to do um, often as scientists is is to keep away from animal experiments where we possibly can um, by taking cell culture alternatives or, or work in, in, in um, other organisms such as uh, uh, fr- fruit flies um, and the work that we've done up to this point has, has been here um, in a cell culture system. There will, at some point, there be a need to um, confirm this uh, with, with, a, with looking at a mammalian nervous system to, to know that what we've seen is physiologically relevant. And that's a very important step because if we always stick to alternatives, uh, then there is also a risk of diverting the science if we don't actually confirm that we are looking at the, at, at the right thing. So that's one very important step uh, um, to take in the near future. Um, another one uh, is to look at what this means in terms of disease. So we, we need to actually remove this protein and now and ask whether the nerves actually start to die back um, uh, and whether this mimics certain disease situations. But it's certainly very promising work. Again, I do like the fact that we seem to come up with all these really promising things. Hopefully we can follow up with you in the future and find out how it's doing. Yes, great. Well, thank you ever so much, Michael. That was Dr. Michael Coleman. He's based at the BBS Aussie's Babraham Institute, and they've published this discovery in the open access journal PLOS Biology. So you can find that online. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.